Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Now is a great time to join because you'll receive a month free when you pledge annually. Join the Talking Tudors patron family to instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to enter patron-only monthly giveaways. August's prize is a gift pack from the recent exhibition, The Tudors Art and Majesty in Renaissance England, kindly sponsored by Dr. Valerie Schutte. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Aoife Brady to the show to talk about the Bolognese painter Lavinia Fontana. Dr. Brady is Curator of Italian and Spanish Art at the National Gallery of Ireland. A specialist in Bolognese painting, Brady holds a doctorate in the history of art from Trinity College Dublin and has held curatorial roles with the National Gallery London and the Paintings Department of the J. Paul Getty Museum Los Angeles. Her primary research interests relate to the study of painting techniques, materials and artists' studio practices, with focus on 17th century Italy and Spain. Recently, she has curated a large-scale monographic exhibition examining the life and work of Lavinia Fontana on at the National Gallery of Ireland until the 27th of August 2023. Let's dive straight in. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Aoife. How are you? I'm well, Natalie. Delighted to be here speaking with you today. Yes, it's so lovely to have you on the podcast and it would be really wonderful if you would just introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about you and your background. My name is Aoife Brady. I am the curator of Italian and Spanish art at the National Gallery of Ireland in Dublin. And I recently opened a large scale monographic exhibition on Lavinia Fontana, a great 16th century woman artist. Yes, and it's so exciting. And we are here to talk about Lavinia. But before we dive into her life and her work, can you tell us a little bit about what a kind of day in the life of a curator of Italian and Spanish art looks like? 
every day is different, which is one of the most brilliant things about this job in that sometimes I find myself researching for catalogues or writing labels. Other days I'll be working on displays, you know, changing um, the paintings that are hanging in our galleries in, in Dublin. Other days I'll be collaborating with colleagues on projects like this, podcasts and radio interviews and sometimes uh, research projects. It's really wide and varied. So we're involved in everything from research to display to temporary exhibitions uh, and lots of publications and writing. Does sound like a dream job, I have to say. And so you've mentioned an exhibition about the work of Lavinia Fontana is currently on at the National Gallery of Ireland. So in case our listeners haven't heard of her, do you want to tell us who she was and what makes her such a fascinating subject? Lavinia Fontana was an artist active in Bologna in the late 16th century, and she's credited as being the first commercially successful woman artist in the Western world. That is someone who was professionally successful beyond the confines of a court or a convent, these being the enclosed environments in which women could practice painting prior to Lavinia's career. And uh, so she's a woman that broke a lot of ground in her time. And the exhibition title really speaks to that. It's Lavinia Fontana, Trailblazer, Rule Breaker. And I promise you, it's really not an overstatement. She was an extraordinary person. I have to say that title is very catchy. It certainly caught my attention. And I love, love, love listening and learning about women in the 16th century that forged these incredible paths for themselves. So can we talk a little bit about Lavinia's education and her artistic training? Absolutely. Lavinia was born in 1552, so she's born in a time in which women were precluded from studying in artists' academies or apprenticing to master artists as would have been completely conventional for most men of her day. Similarly, she wasn't able to you know, join important artist academies or guilds and she wasn't permitted to study from life. And so her access into this male-dominated profession came through her father, Prospero Fontana, who himself was a very successful and recognised painter of the Bolognese school in the late 16th century. But by the 1560s, we know Prospero becomes ill. And it seems at that point, there's an impetus to train his daughter. He had no sons, just two daughters. And Lavinia seems to have shown some proclivity. And he begins to train her quite late in life. So she's 19 or 20 before he begins to train her in response to financial worries, really. And this is very late compared to most of her male contemporaries who would have begun their training as painters at 12, 13, you know, very early in their teens. So she's kind of rushed through this in her art, in her father's studio. And yet she seems to, you know, pick up her skills pretty rapidly. And by the time she's in her mid 20s, she's practicing independently as a, as a painter. Where did Lavinia actually work once she started her her artistic career? Where did she work and who were some of her, her patrons and clients? She spent much of her professional life in Bologna, with the exception of the final 10 years of her career, which she spends in Rome. But Bologna really is her sort of uh, cultural home, if you like. It's the place that she builds her reputation. It's the place where most of her major clients come from. And in the initial phases of her career, her main client base were the scholarly men of Bologna's university, Bologna being home to Europe's oldest university. And these were people that Prospero Fontana was able to connect his daughter with very early in her career as a painter in that he had illustrated books of theirs and Lavinia's mother, her family ran a publishing house in Bologna. So these were a group of clients that they had direct access to that people, you know, they, they knew the family already. And so it was easy for Prospero to market his daughter, this, you know, novel woman painter to these known entities. And they become her primary sort of supporters in her early career. And we know that she makes paintings of them and either gives them away or sells them at a very low price in her initial in her initial phases. And this helps to establish her reputation. 
by the time we make we get to the 1580s, kind of the second decade of her career, if you like, we see that client base being overtaken very rapidly by the noble women of Bologna, many of them the wives and daughters of the city's 40 senatorial families. And she becomes most famous then for these grand portraits of these beautiful women in the most uh, extravagant fashions of the day. And so Lavinia Fontana was also a wife and she was the mother of, I believe it's 11 children. I haven't fact-checked that totally, but I have seen a lot of articles say 11 children. So do we know very much about her, her family life? We do. And you're dead right. It's precisely 11 children. And we can say this with certainty because in the exhibition in Dublin, we have the family's baptismal records that were kept fastidiously by Lavinia's husband, Gian Paolo. So he, every time a child was born, he wrote down their name, the date and time of birth, where they were baptized, who their godparents were. It's a fascinating document that gives us a truly um, unique insight into the family life and the sort of, I suppose, personal life of this amazing professional woman who had to deal with so much more than any of her male predecessors or contemporaries. But her husband was the first important family member in that way that helped her to build her professional career. Because without a husband, without being married in the 16th century, women couldn't engage in business negotiations. They Their virtue would have been questioned if they were working directly with male clients. There were all kinds of issues and obstacles that single women would have faced. And Prospero Fontana, again, there's a real keen strategy in the initial years of Lavinia's career, trying to find her a husband that wasn't going to stand in her way, essentially. Somebody who would, you know, permit her to continue to work after after they married, which was totally unconventional in the Renaissance period. And we find that he identifies a man named Gian Paolo, Gian Paolo Zappi from Imola, just outside Bologna. And he's described by early modern writers as a man of good social standing, but with little potential for earning. So he's kind of perfect. He's uh, a minor nobleman. He's going to elevate her status, but he's not going to get in her way. And he seems very satisfied to take a backseat to his wife in, in her career. And we also have in the exhibition their marriage contract that details this extraordinary arrangement forged between the two families. It says that Gian Paolo would move to Bologna, uh, move in with Lavinia and her family, remain there for as long as Prospero Fontana lived, and that he would permit his wife in continuing to progress as a professional painter. How wonderful to have those documents surviving, if only they survived for all the people we like to learn about and and research. That's (laughs) extraordinary. And and you've mentioned, obviously, that this was not a conventional arrangement. So do, do we know if they received much criticism? at the time? Were there people that were kind of looking down on this situation? It seems that people looked down on Zappi to some degree because, you know, his status within the household was suddenly secondary. And of course, we're living in a very patriarchal society in which the man of the house was really the fundamental figure in most families. And as such, a lot of early modern writers sort of seem to ridicule Zappi in ways, say that God wished him to be a tailor rather than a painter because Lavinia relegates him to painting draperies in her studio. And we know that this is fallacy. Like it, it doesn't seem likely that Gianpaolo was a painter at all. And if if he was a painter, Lavinia would not have farmed out her drapery painting to him because this is an aspect of her practice that became really characteristic of what she was you know, known for. So it seems that this is just a way to make fun of him, to poke fun at the notion that he's an assistant in some way to his wife and that he's playing a secondary role in their household. Quite an extraordinary situation, really, isn't it? So you've mentioned that she gained this incredible commercial success. So what is it actually that enabled her? I can, you know, there's obviously supportive family here that I that you've mentioned. But what other aspects do you think about her or her work or her personality enabled her to to make this incredible career? She was incredibly strategic and astute, and this is something that's become more and more apparent to me as 
you know, the research on this project has gone on. So even since the exhibition has opened, this has become more more and more obvious that she was a really expert marketing person. And so from the initial phases where she had to sell her paintings cheap and, you know, identify this body of clientele who would be slightly more open-minded in some way toward a woman painter to her more mature career where she's painting the noble women of Bologna, you know, at that point we see that she moves her family's studio from one side of the city to the other so that it sits between the two streets that house all the noble palaces in Bologna. And so she needed only to walk out her front door and she'll encounter the noble women that she wanted to make her patrons, that she wanted to make her clients. She also makes them godparents to her children. She names daughters after them. You know, so none of this happens by accident. She establishes her reputation through really clear strategy and very clever marketing. This sounds like an incredibly intelligent woman. And so you mentioned the family practice there. So does she have a, a studio separate to the family home or is it all in one? It's all in one. And this is quite common in Bologna, where I don't know if you've ever been. It's La Citarossa, the beautiful red city, where most of the streets are lined with these terracotta arches. And the lower stories of these buildings would often have been living quarters. And in the cases of artists, the upper stories were given over to studios and they would be made up of a series of adjoining rooms. So initially, Lavinia begins working in her father's studio and that very quickly becomes her own as he as his health is failing. And when he when she moves the studio to the other side of the, of the city, she moves the entire family with her. So they their living quarters also change. So it was quite a dramatic move in some ways, you know, to make purely for marketing reasons. But obviously it was necessary for her her success. I find it really fascinating to hear about art, 16th century artists and their techniques and their working practices. So do you want to tell us a little bit about Lavinia and her techniques? Of course, this is something that was really fundamental to our research on this project. The exhibition was born from a large scale conservation and research project that we began in 2019 on one of our own paintings, a painting of the Queen of Sheba, visiting King Solomon by Lavinia Fontana that the National Gallery of Ireland acquired for Dublin in 1872. And this was a, a project sponsored by the Bank of America and it enabled us to do a real deep dive into Lavinia's technique. We did a lot of analytical work, a lot of scientific analysis that gave us an insight into how she was working and what materials she was using, for example. And I thought this was a really important thing to bring into the exhibition because oftentimes with women artists, people become so preoccupied with their biographies as these extraordinary women that this comes at all expense of any kind of serious consideration of their paintings of their activity as makers as you know as as painters as as professional people and so that was a really nice thing to be able to do we brought in our own analysis and also analysis that has been carried out in different institutions all over the world that has been shared with us just for the purposes of, of the research for this exhibition. And it's given us a wonderful insight into how Lavinia worked. For example, we know that while many artists would draw in their preparations on their canvas before they began to paint, we call this underdrawing, Lavinia uses instead incisions. So she's using some kind of sharp uh, tool or, or instrument to create incised line. And you can still see it on the surface where she's laid in different architectural features and sometimes organic forms with these little incisions. And we also know that she was really clever in how she used specific kinds of painting pigments. She understood the different qualities of pigments. And this must come from having observed her father, but also she seems to take some of her cues from the local textile weavers and makers because she uses pigments like lead white, which is a white pigment that has wonderful tensile strength. You can stretch it. It's almost elastic. She uses it like thread. So when she's creating these wonderful detailed uh, representations of people's lace ruffs, for example, she's 
draping the paint onto canvas like thread and creating these wonderfully three-dimensional representations of these kinds of textiles. So she's a very clever craftsperson and she really knew her materials and how to use them. And with the incisions, that's so interesting. Is that something you find with other artists or is that kind of original to, to Lavinia? It's not completely unique to Lavinia, but it's out of step with what many of the male artists of the day would have been doing. So she does seem to sort of exploit this technique to a much higher degree than we might see as common. It seems that artists after her in Bologna begin to pick this up. And we see artists like Guido Reni, one of the very famous 17th century Bolognese artists, using a similar method in laying in architectural features using these incisions. So she, she seems to have left a little bit of a legacy in terms of her workshop practice. It does sound like it. And, and often, obviously, we hear paintings are attributed to an artist's workshop. Does she have people working for her apprentices? How is she working alone or, or with other people? This is the million dollar question. Unfortunately, for the same reasons as I've outlined this preoccupation with biography, we have no real information. We don't have documents talking about how Lavinia worked or what she was doing. Most of the 16th and 17th century writers who refer to her are just so bowled over by the notion that a woman artist exists that that's really what they're talking about. So we don't get much of an insight. We do, however, see mention of two students uh, one, a, a young woman of the Gozzadini family, who were a prominent noble family in Bologna that Lavinia was teaching, and also her eldest daughter, Ledomia, who was supposedly also a student and very tragically passed away at age 14. And this supposedly left Lavinia heartbroken. Aside from that, we don't have any sort of documents or hard evidence to tell us that she had a team of assistants in a studio with her. And as a woman, she would have been precluded from working shoulder to shoulder with studio assistants, as would have been absolutely conventional for male artists of the time. But I do think given the level of detail of many of her paintings, how prolific she was, the scale on which she worked at different times, that she, it, these this kind of work would have necessitated assistance. And I think it's likely that these people would have worked in separate spaces to her. It would have been a more complicated and difficult arrangement to manage. Uh, Manage, but I think she she must have contracted people in for, for certain commissions at the very least. And in terms of her portraiture, you were saying that she obviously painted a lot of the, the sort of more elite women of Bologna. Is she painting from life? Are they coming into the studio and sitting for her? Yes, and a lot of the time she's also going to them. It seems to vary quite dramatically. We do have quite a lot of letters between Lavinia and her clients describing the various arrangements that are being made before a portrait commission is completed. And in some instances, she goes to see them and in other instances, they come to see her. And almost every time she seems to capture them in, in chalk. And we have these wonderful, tiny little chalk head studies that Lavinia definitely seems to draw from life. And they just capture the sort of key elements of a sitter's features and their individual expressions. And these seem to have formed the basis for her portraits. But we also find sometimes that she does paint people from life. She's not just sketching them on the spot. So we have, for example, a portrait of Carlo Sigonio, which is in Modena. She painted his effigy. That's how it's described in the letter from life. So she had him sitting to her. But there doesn't seem to have been a hard and fast rule or way in which she approached these kinds of commissions. Fascinating. And and so you've mentioned a couple of her works just in our conversation, but what are some of her most highly regarded works? Well, I'm I'm probably biased, but <laughs> our painting in the National Gallery of Ireland is widely recognised as Lavinia Fontana's most ambitious work. It's about three and a half metres wide. It's a huge allegorical multi-figure composition that encompasses every genre for which the artist was famed from still life to portraiture to wonderful grandiose depictions of 16th century fashions and so it's a very detailed and ornate composition that really speaks to what Lavinia became famous for. 
before. But there are many others. In the exhibition alone, we have an incredible altarpiece of the consecration to the Virgin that came to us from the Musée des Beaux-Arts in Marseille. And it's again over three metres high and incredibly naturalistic in its lower half, which represents the children of the Nieti family, who are another prominent noble family in Bologna. And as you approach the heavens, it becomes more pastel and ethereal and slightly more um, divine, if you like. And we have a wonderful representation right at the top of a breastfeeding Madonna. So we see these little, I suppose, nods to the feminine injected into Lavinia's works uh, in surprising ways in many in many occasions. And beyond that, we have some wonderful works on, in miniature as well. She's not just a brilliant painter on a large scale. She was also incredibly skilled at painting in miniature. And this was sort of a necessity for an artist who spent much of her professional life pregnant. She wasn't able to work on a large scale all the time. She wouldn't have been in a physical state to climb up ladders, for example, in certain moments of her life. And so she becomes very adept at painting in very tiny, tiny images in extraordinary detail and often on media like copper or wood panel. And so we have her famous self-portrait of 1579 from the Galleria degli Uffizi, where she is depicting herself as an erudite scholarly artist. And the more you look at that, the more you get. It's, it's only about 15 centimetres wide. It's a little circular tondo. And she's detailed everything in it from every thread of lace to the pen in her hand and a series of plaster casts in the background with the same meticulous attention that she'd treat things on a large scale. She's just extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And so what became of her ephod? Did she work into her sort of older years? She does. She Well, I mean, it depends on what you describe as old. As I old. suppose on a podcast dedicated to the Tudors, people are probably used to a premature, premature passing. Uh, but she she lives until the age of 62, which is a reasonably good age for the period. But she spends her final years in Rome. So in, in 1599, she completes three major commissions. She completes our own Queen of Sheba visiting King Solomon. She completes that consecration to the Virgin that I just mentioned. And she also completes a painting of St. Hyacinth for the Church of Santa Sabina in Rome. And this is a commission that she receives from a cardinal named Cardinal Bernerio. And he commissions the painting for Santa Sabina and it becomes the first public painting by a woman to be displayed in Rome. And on the back of that, she's invited to the Eternal City and she moves with her entire family, uh, including her aging mother. Her father was dead at that stage, uh, but they all up sticks and move to Rome. And by 1605, she is invited to become part of the Vatican court under Pope Paul V. So she becomes a portrait painter to the Vatican, which is extraordinary. We go from a woman who's broken so many glass ceilings just to become the first commercially successful woman artist. And here she is painting portraits uh, for the Pope. So it was a serious rise to fame, but it seems that the final 10 years of her life were rather difficult. We know that her 14-year-old her daughter passes away shortly before the family move. And according to the few writers that knew Lavinia, this leaves her heartbroken and she never really recovers. And we also know that she develops arthritis towards the end of her life. And this makes working obviously quite difficult. And so it's a tricky and, and sort of sad end for an artist who had fought so hard to overcome such adversity. But um, she's di she dies in, in Rome and is buried in Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, a church in the, in the center of the city. And her epitaph, though it's now lost, read, here lies Lavinia Fontana, a great woman painter on par with the great men of her age. So always, always compared to her male, her male contemporaries and predecessors, but has left a, a far ranging legacy and was a celebrity artist even after her death for quite a time. Well, I think she's certainly uh, the title trailblazer rule breakout that is absolutely an, an, a fascinating story so in terms of the exhibition 
what can uh, visitors expect to see there? You've told us about some of the items, sounds wonderful, but what else is on display? It's a, a quite a large exhibition. We have 66 objects in total and they're, they've come to us from both public and private collections worldwide. And so you'll see some paintings that have never been viewed by the public before, which is a wonderful thing to bring uh, together. Really, it's very nice to be able to display things that are often behind closed doors. And the exhibition is very mixed in terms of the media that it, that it includes. So not only do I have paintings on display, but also a series of drawings by Lavinia. Lavinia is the first woman artist to whom we can attribute a large corpus of surviving drawings and the first woman who has any preparatory drawings surviving that relate to paintings. So we have both paintings and drawings and oftentimes drawings that relate directly to paintings, which is a nice thing. Uh, but we also have 16th century manuscripts, as I alluded to earlier. We have decorative arts, jewellery, there are rare books. So it's quite a, a mix of things. And then I also have 16th century textiles, which is a really lovely element to bring in because the textile industry was so central to Bologna, to Bologna's econ economy and to its fame in this period. Again, it just helps people to recognise that what Lavinia is painting is really the world around her. It gives people a sense that Renaissance Bologna really did look this opulent and this sumptuous in many different ways. And so I've tried to create that immersive experience so that people can really enter the world of Lavinia Fontana and meet her patrons and experience the environment in which she was operating. Well, it sounds so good. I feel like jumping on an airplane right now and getting over there so I can see it. So it, it closes at the end of this month. Is that right? End of August? It closes on the 27th of August 27th. and there's no second venue. It's just in Dublin. So if you can make it, please do. We're always delighted to have new visitors, new faces. Absolutely. And there is, I believe, a publication that accompanies the exhibition. Is that right? There is. So we've, we've put together a large catalogue that I has largely been written by me, but with really excellent contributions from Babette Bone, who's one of the leading experts on women artists of Bologna, and Jonquil O'Reilly, who's a fashion historian, and she really brings a whole different element to the to the catalogue, which has really been fascinating for me to learn about. And it's being distributed by Yale University Press, so it should be available on Amazon or on Yale's website for those of you who are interested in reading it. Yes, I feel another book purchase coming on. This happens to me regularly. <laughs> I think it's going to happen again. Now, this has been so fascinating talking to you about this wonderful exhibition and this extraordinary woman, but there, there's something else we do at the end of episode of talking tutors and that's just what I call 10 to go. So these are 10 quick questions just to get to know you a little bit better. So the first one, what is an inspirational place close to your home that you love to visit? I think probably Hoth Head which is a little peninsula on the coast of North Dublin and it's a very wild and barren landscape, despite the fact that you're not very far from the city centre. And it's a place that you can go and really soak up nature and think and be alone with your thoughts. As a curator, oftentimes we're talking, talking, talking and, you know, reading and taking in information at such a rate that it's very nice to be able to go somewhere to reflect. And oftentimes I find inspiration in those moments. And what about a new skill that you would like to learn? Oh, gosh, having really delved into Lavinia's world for so long, I've been absolutely inspired by embroidery and textile making and production. And it's something that it's, I'd really love to get to grips with. I like to paint and draw, and that's something that I'm comfortable in. But uh, yeah, to be able to extend it out to make some of these beautiful textiles, which are absolute artworks in themselves, would be a lovely skill. Absolutely. And what about the last book that you read or one of the last books that you read? At the moment, I'm reading 
100 Days of Solitude by Gabriel García Márquez. And I'm really enjoying it. It's it's such a wonderful fusion between, uh, I guess, naturalism and surrealism in many ways. And it again reminds me of the sort of period that I'm, I'm existing in at the moment in the gallery, because you sort of see the very ordinary meet the extraordinary, but in a much different context. And I would highly recommend it. It's been a lovely escapism. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've read that one, so I, I might need to revisit it. So, and what do you like to do to just relax and unwind, especially it sounds like you're very busy, so. I'm, um, I have a big golden retriever named Ted, who is always a great respite and reminds us not to take life too seriously. He's still very much a puppy, even though he's a fully grown dog. And my other life then is sailing. So I, I love I love to sail. I love to be out in the water. And it's nice to have that variety in life. I think when you have a career that can be as demanding and busy, it's good to have things that you can really take a break up with. Sounds wonderful. And I was going to ask you if you had pets. So you've answered that. We know about Ted now. That's fantastic. <laughs> and if, if you enjoy traveling, what's a sort of favorite travel destination? Would it be terrible if I said Bologna? It's 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 a really brilliant place to visit. And I, I think I should be on their tourism board because I've <laughs> been promoting it so <laughs> avidly for the last few months but it's somewhere that I've been traveling to since I was a student I, I wrote my PhD on a Bolognese artist and I call it my own cultural home in many ways while I have no Italian blood I feel a great affinity for that part of the country and Bologna is an extraordinary place they claim to be the inventors of gelato which oh, yes. means that it's uh you know it's a very prominent feature of the city and they do do really really good gelato I won't get into the long long-running debate as to whether their claim is true or not because that would be controversial but very good ice cream and it's referred to as La Cita Grossa which is the fat city because it has the best food on the peninsula so um, that would be probably my favorite place to visit. Oh it sounds absolutely wonderful and what about a last film or even a series that you've watched? Now you you have me thinking television is not something I have a huge amount of time for anymore which is a sad thing but um I am going to go and see Oppenheimer at the weekend. I think that that's the next one that I'll, I'll plan to see. Um, it was a toss up and a, an argument between my husband and I, whether it would be Barbie or Oppenheimer. And so Oppenheimer is one in the first instance. And maybe we'll go and see Barbie later to cheer ourselves up. Yes, I'm actually going to see it tomorrow. Not Barbie, Oppenheimer. So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Definitely. Yes, I know. I don't get to watch very much TV at all. I don't even know why I have a TV, to be honest with you. Um, I, watched, I watched quiz shows and things like oh, that, but right. I tend not to really have time for series. And what is your favourite season and why? Oh, definitely winter. Despite being an Italian and Spanish specialist, I loved cold weather and I don't cope very well in hot. And um, I love nothing more than the cold January mornings in that we get in Ireland, I should say, not Australia. I know we're <laughs> opposite. Um, but yeah, January in Dublin, when you get cold and crisp but bright weather, there's nothing better. You get this wonderfully intense sun and you have to wrap up terribly to go out in it. And you have to make sure that if you're on a walk, you're walking quickly to keep yourself warm. But I find it so refreshing. And uh, yeah, I love I love a bit of cool breeze on my face. Oh, that does sound good. Love it. Yeah, I know. Our winter has been extraordinary. It's been blue skies sunshine. Some days have been quite chilly, but I have to say we'd had a day the other day that was 25 degrees Celsius in winter. And even for us, that is quite extraordinary. So I do worry a bit about our climate because I like my seasons and I don't want them to, to disappear. Aoife, what about a signature recipe? I think my signature recipe is a very simple one. Um, I do a pasta of, of your choosing, whatever you, whatever you prefer, with capers and really good quality olive oil and asparagus and uh, lemon juice and a little bit of parmesan and that's all it needs very mm. simple yeah. very fresh nice for summertime <laughs> i like it that sounds good and lucky last question i know this is probably going to be extremely difficult for you but a favorite artwork 
That is very difficult, isn't it? It always is because I think it changes quite regularly. I love the Manchester Madonna in the National Gallery in London, which is Michelangelo, because it's an unfinished early work by this genius artist. And it gives us this incredible insight into how he was working, how he was creating these, you know, otherworldly images that seem impossible almost from the human hand. And that's these kinds of paintings, unfinished paintings, paintings in which we can detect some evidence of the artist's hand tend to be my favourite because I love getting that behind the scenes glimpse at what was going on in their head or how they were approaching a certain subject matter. And I think that with these sorts of works we can really connect with times that have gone by which of course is the purpose of your podcast sure is that's wonderful we all need to go and have a look at that now so the very last thing and i will let you get on with your day is for a takeaway so i ask all my guests for something for our listeners to go off and explore after the show that might deepen their understanding about art 16th century art or lavinia fontana's life my takeaway, I think, would be the Museo del Tessuto. The Museo del Tessuto is the textile museum in Prato. It's, it's an incredible, a small institution, but an incredible one that's dedicated to both textiles as art, but also textile production and the industry more broadly. And it gives a really important and unique insight into this industry that was so central to Italian culture. I think we oftentimes we spend so much time looking at the paintings and artworks that we forget that industry and art went really hand in hand. And they have a collection of really rare textiles that give you an insight into what Lavinia was looking at, as I mentioned, you know, what what she could see in front of her while she was painting. And they have a great online resource uh, that where you can explore their collection on their website. So if you don't have an opportunity to travel to Prato yourself, you can explore online and even the photographs, you'll get a sense of the sumptuous textured uh, beautiful textiles that originated from this period. That sounds wonderful. I'm definitely going to have a look at that. Um, so there's a link is there to a website? Fabulous. Yes, I can I can send it to you afterwards if you need. Thank you so much. That would be wonderful. And I can pop it in the show notes so everyone can find that nice and easily. So Aoife, thank you so much. This has been such a fascinating discussion. I encourage anyone that can get to the gallery to, to go and see this incredible exhibition. And of course, the publication that is out sounds wonderful as well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website www.onthetudortrail.com where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. <music> <laughs>